political commentator and investigative journalist. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, yeah, we just touched on the uh, topic at hand before the break. We're talking about the so-called global pandemic, and uh, it's a very a precarious topic these days, uh, and you know, we've dedicated quite a lot of time on this program to looking for evidence of an actual global pandemic, and we're always surprised to find how difficult that task actually is when you're actually looking for empirical evidence, when you're digging, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, and everybody's telling you there was a novel virus that was uh, doing this whirlwind tour around the globe managed to uh, touch 170 something countries in a a matter of uh, two weeks and it's difficult to prove that now looking back in retrospect there's so many problems with the story and a lot of people diligent journalist researchers are still looking into this still trying to retrace the steps of events i think this is a very important process uh, because this allows us to get the proper historical record put this into context and of course make informed policy decisions going forward isn't that what we all want certainly that's what uh, i want and i'm sure most people listening on this network want and one of the people who's helping in that process um, is is also a very dedicated researcher Um, his work is uh, is quite prevalent he's done a lot of segments and appeared on a lot of shows online his name's michael bryant and he's releasing a report uh later today about the what really happened in Italy, northern Italy uh, specifically, and this came right in the wake of the Wuhan hysteria, uh, the beginning of the so-called global pandemic, and all eyes were on northern Italy. When I say all eyes, I mean everybody was watching that so closely, and uh, and I think in many ways it informed the uh, the reaction, the narrative, the media, the, the policies, a lot of this was really, it hinged on what happened or what we think happened in northern Italy. And I think I've got Michael on the line from, from the U.S. right now, see if we can pull him in here. Hey, hey, Michael, how you doing? Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Mike. And uh, look, um, you know, you, you heard the setup on this, so you know where we're coming from on this. And, uh, you know, just tell us a little bit about your research. You know, what, what pulled you into to this subject and what, what are your findings of late? Yes, uh, you know, I think that was the perfect introduction for what I've um, uh, explored relating to Northern Italy. Um, and the overall thesis is that uh, Northern Italy was used as the launching pad for the COVID hysteria to validate, in fact, first that it was a, a real phenomena to the Western world and then to um, implement certain policies, lockdown policies, and uh, normalize those within the Western world. Um, first, how I came into it is uh, I worked with Time Speech Action Group back in the 1990s. Times Beach was the town uh, outside of St. Louis that was evacuated due to um, uh, dioxin contamination. I won't go into that in too much detail, but essentially we were always hearing as we were investigating what, what exactly was in the soil in Times Beach, you know, this is the second most dioxin contaminated place in the world. And, you know, we were always like, okay, who's in first place? And it was Cavaso, Italy. So when um, everything was coming around in February of 2020, you know, I was 
very curious to see, okay, you know, how much of this is really related to the current epidemiological status of uh, Italians in that region, in northern Italy. And, you know, what I've come to find is that, in fact, you know, there, there are all sorts of issues relating to pollution, toxic contamination, uh, decimation of health services, and so on, that really had such a stage um, for you know, what ultimately um, happened in northern Italy, which, you know, occurred mainly due to uh, iotogenic uh, death, you know, and, and all of this was, was pretty well orchestrated. It was, it was pre-planned. And, and this is interesting. So it's, it's from your past experience with a, another type of phenomenon or an event. Uh, in this case, you're, you know, you're talking about a high profile, uh, toxic contamination event in the United States. And immediately, you know, you saw how things were unfolding in 2020 and red, red flags, red flags go up immediately and you're immediately tuned into. So, so how do your thought process go? So you're, you're using a process of deduction there. Um, is some would call that sort of critical thinking, of course, but your deductive process. So your your process of looking at the problem was very different than how the media were looking at it, and how a lot of uh, the public then looked at it. Um, is that a fair assessment? I think so. Um, I had a history with uh, examining some of these past pandemics. Um, you know, the avian flu in 2005, swine flu 2009, and had looked into um, uh, the Ebola, um, all the various stories surrounding Ebola as well. Um, so um, I think I had a, a pretty a leg up on certain types of insights into how these things operated, how the WHO operated, who were some of the financiers involved in, in these things in the past. And so, you know, it didn't take much for my, my red flags to come out. And um, uh, this this immediately smelled bad. Uh, so the, that, that, the, the other thing, and uh, you can comment on this quickly. Just we're 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 th we're turning our, our our minds back in time to the winter of 2020, the spring of 2020, and that's when this was all uh, hitting fever pitch. And I remember because a lot of us, Michael, um, who hadn't looked that closely at previous so-called epidemics or pandemics, um, we, we were kind of overwhelmed by all the new jargon. And all, this new class of expert emerged called the epidemiologist. And I was always, you know, always much, very much in awe of this position, maybe because I think thought of it in the Hollywood sense um, when they bring in the epidemiologists in the Hollywood films like Contagion and so and they're supposed to be these kind of all-knowing quarterbacking experts that could see the big picture but now having learned about the uh, the fraud you could say the fraudulent nature in which the data sets of cases are uh, accumulated and things like IFR and CFR uh, case fatality rate, infection fatality rate are, are collated based on the data from testing. Then all of a sudden the epidemiologist now I'm thinking, what do they actually know? <laughs> you know, what, what do they actually know? But um, your, your comment on, on that sort of thing, the, all these new experts. 
Um, they're like magicians, you know, they have all sorts of different tricks that they can um, pretty much show anything from anything. And then they can also um, create anything out of nothing. And they do it. And most of them, when you, you know, at least most of the ones that we're exposed to, um, we're exposed to them for a reason. And these people have money behind them. So once you dig into that a little bit, you'll see that uh, uh, the individual who's producing Study X um, uh, has uh, uh, financial individuals behind them who are interested in studying study X coming out with coming away with a predetermined outcome. So, so tell us, uh, t- give us the picture here, sketch the picture of Northern Italy, uh, Lombardi, Bergamo, uh, everybody was going hysterical. Uh, all we saw on television was images of, uh, you know, hospitals backed up and, you know, ER people freaking out with all their masks on, talking to the media, bodies queuing up in the hallways, the, this sort of stuff. And it was just horror, 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 24-7. Now, that's the image. That's the image from, from winter of 2020. Uh, and how, do you bre- how did you break that down? What, did, what, what, did you, what are you discovering now? So let's start with the um, uh, pollution problems. Uh, the Po River Valley in northern Italy is uh, cited as having the worst air quality in all of Europe. And it's been deteriorating for quite a few years. And uh, the cities in that area are cited as having the highest mortality burdens associated with air pollution. That's an important point to highlight. Um, and also due, due to... Um, a certain characteristic of low winds and prolonged episodes of climatic inversion, this, this area, you know, essentially gets turned into a holding tank, tank for atmospheric pollution. So, um, for example, the Lancet Planetary Health Report in January of 2021 estimated the death rates associated with fine particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide pollution in 1,000 European cities. Um, Brescia and Bergamo, in the Lombardy region, uh, they were number one and two, okay? And then two other northern Italian cities, Vicenza and Serona, were fourth and eighth, respectively. So that's in the top 10 cities in that category. Four of them are precisely in the regions where we had the, we had the highest incidence of upper respiratory infections as reported in the official pandemic narrative, okay? And so, what you know, what you have here, you know, we had uh, this ongoing and accelerating epidemics of, pulmonary fibrosis, bronchial and lung cancer, interstitial lung disease, and so forth um, throughout Italy, okay? Um, Italy's also been dealing with an ongoing asbestos problem from occupational asbestos exposure from the 60s and 70s. And um, as late as 2017, they were saying that this, the incident rates of um, uh, mesothelioma Stylioma, I'm struggling with that word, um, uh, we're still increasing in this region. And that, that uh, primarily impacts the linings of the chest and the abdomen. And finally, on this, um, there's another study. Uh, there was a four-year study done in, from 2013 to 2017, and it was done just in the uh, winter season um, that showed that the rates of death to what's called the common flu have increased markedly in this area. So by 2016-17 season, the totals had gone from 7,000, around 7,000, up to almost 25,000 excess deaths 
attributable to flu to the flu epidemic. So you know what we're seeing in this in this region is this pre-existing panoply of of uh, toxic exposures that is has created these pre-existing health conditions. So in essence, these individuals, and this is with an aging population, these individuals are really primed for anything to tip them over the edge. I'm glad you mentioned the age profile, uh, Michael, because I think that's also very important as well. And even though you, you've also meant the asbestos issue going back to the 60s and 70s, of course, that's going to affect people in their 70s and 80s. Um, so this is a legacy issue, isn't it? So, there's a number of uh, legacy issues that, that are creeping in there, and none of this is being spoken about in the mainstream media or mainstream medical. Um, all we're talking about is there's a, sh- a shortage of ventilators in northern Italy, and you know it's, it's carnage, says the ho- frontline healthcare workers. That's all we got during this time, but you've, you've painted a very different uh, picture here, Michael, about the things that are feeding into the most important uh, data set in terms of at this point was COVID deaths, COVID cases and COVID deaths. But you, you've made a pretty compelling case there, Mike, just on what you've laid out that we could have another explanation for the, the cases and the deaths. And we're not even getting into PCR testing um, at the moment. You're, you're literally you know, t- telling us about an existing flu profile. Uh, in previous years, that's building and building and building. So, yeah. So it's it's a it's all it's the whole pandemic's driven by COVID cases and COVID deaths. Your your thoughts on that? Well, I just I'd like to add that uh, one one further um, legacy issue was that 1976 uh, dioxin spill in which is the, the worst in uh, history uh, impacting residential population. Dioxin's a known cancer causing agent, so. If you're living in and around that region, that's in northern northern Italy in 76, you're 20 years old, and now you're in your 60s um, in one of these towns called Nepro in that region, uh, outside of Milan. Um, uh, the cancer is the leading cause of death for men, and specifically lung cancer. So this is just another um, issue that's been facing you know, the people in this region for, for quite some time. Um, yeah, so as far as the cases go, um, can, can we go can we go back to that because I have some information specific to what was revealed with the testing in Italy. Go ahead. Um, yeah, go 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 ahead oh, by all means. yeah. So um, first, I wanted to just go you know just take a quick look into the state of hospitals in northern Italy, um, which if you look, before the pandemic, you know, we have a pattern that starts to, to emerge, okay? So um, in, a, in a report in 2019 called Health in Hospitals in Italy, the 17th annual report, they noted a, a significant increase in 2019 of people on waiting lists and for longer, longer time compared to the already problematic situation in 2018, and they stated a pronounced deterioration over the last five years of the connection between general medicine and hospitals. Um, and so uh, what we had seen in Italy in the year 2000 was the second highest ranked uh, medical system in all of Europe, okay? 
by the time we're in 2000 and uh, 2020, okay, Italy is down to 5,179 beds in intensive care units for the entire population of over 60 million people. And that's due to austerity measures, which were just ravaging the Italian healthcare system. So they went from the second best um, in all of Europe to where the World Health Organization declared that the Italian healthcare system was no longer capable of offering basic healthcare, okay, by 2019. Well, that's kind of the, the situation, and I could get into some of the more details of the actual numbers of, of bad uh, healthcare staff cuts and, and so forth, but I think that suffices to say that, you know, this is, this is now a set of very precarious individuals who are relying on this um, social service, which now has been absolutely destroyed. And would it be a fair a fair thing to say? And a lot of people have pointed this out at the time, but they weren't listened to. But when you're looking at these dash dashboards, you remember what it was like. Everyone was glued to the COVID dashboards, looking at the country, the cases, looking at the recoveries, looking at the COVID deaths, and it was just looking at raw data there. And you know, if you take Northern Italy, uh, you clearly showed there's a pattern of uh, the, the healthcare capacity was very poor in this area. So you have a high risk population, poor healthcare capacity. And then you could compare that to another place in Europe, let's say somewhere in France or in the UK um, or in, in you know Belgium or Spain or something or Sweden or Germany. Where they had a better healthcare capacity um, and maybe a slightly healthier population, you're obviously going to deduct from that, Michael, that there's going to be vastly different health outcomes if there's a crisis where you know the system was overwhelmed for whatever reason, like hysteria, for instance, or of panic, or something like that. You're not going to have the same health outcomes. Uh, of people, i.e. more people may die uh, in certain areas rather than others. But we were told that that's irrelevant. We were told at the time that COVID doesn't discriminate and to follow the dashboards and ignore any extenuating analysis because there's a pandemic on and we all need to get on board with the program. That's what was going on at the time, Michael. And, and what you're sketching out here you know, should, what would have would it have been better if people had paid attention to this type of analysis at the time? Could that have made a difference in uh, how people were reading this this situation? But your your thoughts? Yes, most most definitely. And um, you know, the way it is presented, the way it was presented, is what was driving uh, this fear and. That was done intentionally as well. And then this just creates this feedback loop, okay? So you have these individuals who are hearing that this virus landed from outer space, that it's the deadly virus in the history of humanity, transmissible and so forth. And already these individuals uh, recognize the, the precariousness in, you know, of their everyday lives. So they begin seeking uh, out what the treatment that they think they can get uh, in these hospitals, and they start doing a mask. So they flood the hospitals. This creates more hysteria. Okay, 
And then we get this introduction of this, these new protocols, which um, essentially take what are treatable upper respiratory conditions and wipe these people out. Okay. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, we're not even talking about just northern Italy. We're talking about very specific places in northern Italy. We're talking about institutionalized settings. So, you know, this, was, this wasn't happening in suburban Lombardy. Lombardy is both a, a city and a region. This wasn't happening in suburban Lombardy. This was happening in the hospitals, in the nursing homes, in other institutional settings where they were taking care of disabled people. Okay, and that's who that was happening. Uh, that, that's who this was, this was happening to. It's also important to recognize this didn't happen in southern Italy, which has the same demographic of ages go, as far as you know, smokers go, all this sort of thing, right? And this is because in southern Italy, and I'm talking per capita, southern Italy is less populated, but per capita, this wasn't happening. Okay, it wasn't even happening in central Italy. Um, in southern Italy, they have a different uh, social structure, okay? They stay with their families, extended families, elderly people will live either with or nearby, okay, their, their children for uh, through the duration of their lives, okay? Not as many nursing homes, okay? Not, people are not in these, in these care centers, okay? They're not um, relying on, you know, the, the medical industry, okay, for their well-being, okay? They'll, they'll use it when they need to, okay? So that, that social difference also um, is, was a contributing, is, is a big factor to look at in that it tells us, now, wait a minute, if this virus was so transmissible, how come in central Italy, there were no, even through the official narrative, there were no cases to speak of and certainly no deaths to speak of. You go to the Tuscany region, which is central Italy, and you look at the case data from March 2020, you'll see it's only 0.4. In three regions in northern Italy, okay, they account for 88 to 89% of the COVID cases and deaths during this time. Okay. And, um, you know, not to skip around too much, but I'd also add that some people were saying, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of Chinese garment workers in northern Italy. Maybe they brought the virus. Well, there are in Milan, but the highest percentage of all, uh, the highest concentration of Chinese migrant labor is in Tuscany, in the Tuscany region. Okay. And that's in all of Europe, not just in all of Italy. And yet, nothing. So as we, you know, as we look at all these different dots and start connecting them, we realize, wait a minute, this story was decontextualized um, and we weren't given much of a picture of what was actually happening. And we haven't even gotten into what actually happened inside the hospitals and um, how the media, you know, uh, deceptively reported all of this. Well, let, let, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I'm here with Michael Bryant. We're really breaking down one of the most incredible and crucial stories of the rollout of this so-called global pandemic, which is the story of Northern Italy back in the winter and spring of 2020. And we're revisiting this and the findings are explosive, ladies and gentlemen. We got more on the other side. I'm Patrick King, your host. You listen to TNT, Today's News Talk. We'll be right back. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I believe today is Al Gore's birthday. Well, maybe it's not Al Gore's birthday, but back in 1948, when Al Gore was born, 
the Earth had 130,000 glaciers. Today, just 75 years later, and after all this climate change, there's still only 130,000 glaciers. Now, wait a minute. 130,000 in 1948 and 130,000 now means that in 75 years there's been no change. If we continue that pace for the rest of Al Gore's life and the rest of whatever offspring and sons and daughters of offspring he has produced, we're still going to have 130,000 glaciers left over in 75 years. Like I said, this is a climate optimum, not a climate emergency. This is TNT, climate and weather watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi. Asking you to enjoy the weather, it's the only weather you got. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the final segment of the final hour here of this live broadcast. And we're coming out of the gates bullish on Monday, ladies and gentlemen. And right now I'm talking to Michael Bryant, and um, he's an incredible researcher. And what he's uh, looking into here I think is very important because it forms the building blocks of a narrative. And the narrative that uh, we've all been sold uh, was that a global pandemic swept across the world uh, at lightning speed back in uh, the winter and spring of 2020. And we had to lock down and wait for the vaccine and so forth and so on. And all of the horrors the, the, that came along with that. That's the, that's the general mainstream narrative. And we're told we needed to do this because of the horrors of Wuhan and the horrors of Northern Italy. It really set the pace. Everybody, I can speak here, the UK government was constantly opining and talking about Northern Italy. So was the press. Everyone was obsessed with the images coming out of Lombardy at the time saying, we need to get ready to do X, Y, and Z because this is coming and it's not a question of when, it's a question of how hard it's going to hit. That's the narrative at the time. And and Michael, your your research it really just shows that there's, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. And it's it's really important. I think this is really important to get this story right because if, if we don't get the story right, then you know we are really putting society at risk of being at the mercy of what I am quickly understanding is a type of a public health uh, technocracy that in many ways uh, it, it has been able to act like a mafia of sorts in a political sense. But literally, when, when they're working with politicians that are meting out public health policy, there seems to be no limits to how hard they can push on certain policies. And in, in, take Italy as an example, Michael. Um, none of this makes sense. So I can't see how any public health officials in Italy um, can claim victory for, for instance, you know, uh, stopping the pandemic by going through all of the, what they did. Um, like, you know, bringing in extra ventilators, for instance. Did you find that? Because that was the case in New York at Elmhurst Hospital. That was ground zero, supposedly, for the pandemic. Interesting comparison with uh, Lombardi here. But the, the, it was all about ventilators at the beginning of this thing. And it turns out that they might have been driving fatalities as much as anything. But uh, your thoughts on that? Yes, precisely. Um, I refer to it as public health despotism. And your, your, um, your uh, comparison to um, northern Italy and what happened in New York City is, is spot on. That is 
when you look at these two places, and I've looked at them both in, in uh, painstaking detail, it's it's the same template. It's the exact same thing. So, um, yeah, they, they were using ventilators um, in northern Italy. And during that initial wave of hysteria in March 2020, um, uh, Italy also requested and received an emergency procurement of mitazolam from Germany. And they stated, quote, we suddenly needed three to four times the normal amount of this drug. They, all, they were also using propofol, which um, um, hasn't been highlighted too much. And both of those drugs, mitazolam and propofol, are, are regularly used for assisted suicide and to put down death row, death row inmates. And so that's what they're using um, in, in um, think, with the, with the ventilators, okay? And these drugs both come with contraindications, you know, with a warning of a side effect, including respiratory depression and respiratory um, arrest. And then the Italian Civil Protection Agency, they took a fast-track public procurement to, to secure 3,800 additional respiratory ventilators. Does that sound familiar? Mm. They maybe, uh, maybe they were talking to Andrew Cuomo and saying, what, what, what should we do here? But um, in any case, um, this was noted early on, as early as April 2020, that these ven- mechanical ventilation was being misused and overused, okay? Um, this Italian expert, he's a world-renowned Italian intensive care specialist, Luciano Gattinoni, um, stated this, okay? Marco Garoni, he's an emergency doctor at the Moriziano Hospital in Turin, stated, quote, we started with a one-size-fits-all attitude, which didn't pay off. Now we try to delay intubation as much as possible, okay? Um, and some doctors, they were they were they desisted from using these ventilators, okay, um, for the simple reason that they had an unusually high death rate, okay, that, uh, you know, we're talking in the 80, 80 to 90 percent of people who were there, they were putting them on, were, were getting killed by these things, okay. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is that really a, a biological aberration, or is that, um, you know, this unprecedented set of, you know, uh, protocols and administrative mandates? public health officials that was killing these people. You know, 100%. And, and, you know, it's, it's about it's about breaking it down into its respective parts in order to uh, create a clearer picture. And and if you add all these things up, that, the, you know, the risk profiles, all the anomalies, um, of course, the ventilator issue is huge. Um, and, and again, I'm back to the New York, to the Elmhurst, you know, I've taken part in panel debates on this topic, Michael, and I get browbeaten by either pharmaceutical people or people that were, quote, frontline healthcare workers that are saying, I have friends that worked at Elmhurst and you don't know it was a battle zone. And we knew and we were there and COVID hit and all the rest of it. And I'm trying to give an analytical account of, you know, what we're looking at, trying to, you know, give, give, deconstruct it a little bit to give some clarity and and they they will use northern italy they will use elmhurst and uh a few other examples i think in london there was one north london hospital that the media played up as being an epicenter and it turned out to be a nothing burger but they do have these sites that that captured the imagination 
of people at the time. And, and I, I can't help but think, Michael, that, you know, the, the, the entire momentum, the, the juggernaut that was the global pandemic, it really rested on a couple of these things, what, which is, you know, scare, scare videos out of China, uh, Northern Italy horror show, some images out of Spain and, and New York. In New York, and and that was to me that was like the in terms of the West anyway, that that was the the, the mainstay, as it were, the lion's share of the kind of imagery that sold the pandemic, and, and pushed governments to act in the in the way which they did, and got the people behind the effort. Um, but uh, yeah, your final thoughts. We've got a couple minutes left. I'll give you the floor um, to tell us tell us about your you know uh, uh, the rest of your findings and your conclusions on this. Okay, so I'll you know, I'll pass over the, uh, the PCR stuff that I wanted to just touch upon briefly. That's not as significant. We all are familiar with how PCR was uh, misused. Um, so the just the, the media, the deception of the media, and I want will highlight um, just these two. Um, uh, pieces to that. First, you know, the report of the trucks hauling away corpses in the crematoria in Lombardy being overrun. Well, the explanations were, though, were that the trucks were needed to haul away corpses because the dead were being removed by the military as funeral directors fearing this killer virus refused to pick up the bodies as they had in, in normal times. And so this uh, magnified fear that made the funeral directors you know, stop their normal duties was compounded by an emergency national law which banned civil and religious ceremonies, okay? This is an overwhelmingly Catholic country that normally relies on ritual bearing, uh, burial. So they didn't even have too many crematorias in the country. So now all of a sudden our crematoria are overflowed because we don't have that many. And um, we, we now have these bodies that have been laying around because those who normally pick them up aren't going to be able to do that or won't do that um, uh, because they're fearing this highly transmissible and deadly new disease. Okay. So um, now to the image of, you know, this famous image in Bergamo of these three long rows of lined up coffins, you know, it's just spread like wildfire, just shocked the world. Okay. Well, nobody investigated the veracity of that photo. Okay. You know, it's like throwing incubators from the base, you know, throwing babies from the incubator back, you know, to, in the run up to the Iraq war. We're not going to look into it. We don't just believe it. OK, well, that photo was a complete lie. OK, the photo was taken in a hangar at Lampedusa Airport on October 5th, 2013. And the, the coffins in that photo were filled with corpses of African migrants who died in a shipwreck off the coast of Lampedusa. Lampedusa is an Italian island off the coast of Tunisia, okay? So, you know, this is, these are just two, and there are many others, two reports of these exaggerated and manipulated deaths from COVID, okay? And once you, you know, once you scratch beneath the surface, you can see that this is just, these were just point blank lies. This is beyond just deep contextualization of the actual um, situation there. So, um, you know, you, you combine all of these things and we can see, you know, that this, you know, we, we were dealing with a social contagion of government mandates and media hysteria. Okay, this is far more dangerous than any supposed biological uh, contagion. Okay, and, you know, what happened in Italy ended up being copied by most of the Western world. Okay, and, you know, why Italy? If we have time for that, you know, we might need to go into it another time. Italy was and is completely broke. Okay. The Italian economy had collapsed, all right? 
They're called the, uh, the sick man of Europe <laughs> by the financial sector. And they were looking for a bailout, okay, as was the, the teetering European Union, okay. Um, so the, these European central bankers are looking at what they call the tsunami of financial collapse, okay. And they thought Italy was going to be the, the albatross that pulled the whole thing down for good reason, okay. So, and they've been warned about this for, for a year. So they, they proposed a, a 1.5 trillion uh, euro bailout, and they ultimately got right around 1.3. And Italy received the largest share, the lion's share of that bailout. They received, um, it was right around $55 billion uh, uh, bailout. And Italy, we have to keep in mind, at this time, is run by central bankers, okay? Uh, Mario Draghi is a central banker, okay? And Conti is a uh, World Economic Forum um, yes man. Okay, so that's who's, who's running the country. And that is the, the motive for Italy um, saying, yes, we will, we will be the, the launching pad for this shock and awe campaign, okay, to terrorize the world so that we can use this viral invasion, okay, as an ostensible reason why we need to shut all these business down, lock everybody down, and then we're going to need a bailout because this thing is destroying the economy, which is uh, completely absurd. The virus wasn't destroying anything. It was the policies that these individuals were doing, which was destroying the, the economies um, uh, throughout Europe and Italy in particular, and then, and then moved all across shores to the U.S., Canada, etc. Okay, so yeah. This was, um, you know, when you start connecting the dots, you know, you, you, you see, you see that uh, it, it takes a, an incredibly naive person, I think, to think this set of circumstances just happened coincidentally. No, without, okay. a, without a doubt. And, and how many ICU beds did they have in total in Italy at that moment again? What was that number? Uh, I want to say it was oh around. Let's see, in in just a couple of figures, they had uh, five thousand one hundred seventy nine beds in intensive care units. That's from twenty twenty for all of Italy. That's about eight point nine beds per one hundred thousand people um, for a population of of sixty million. Um, they they had also cut. Healthcare staff by 5.3 percent. Okay, um, bed availability in acute medical units units dropped from 922 per 100,000 to 262 per 100,000 from 1980 to 2009. Okay, sorry, 2017. So we're looking at a base, basically a 30-year period where the population is growing, it's aging, and they cut the amount of acute medical units by a little more than threefold during that time. That point alone, Michael, that point alone uh, creates the perfect storm. Um, and, and along with everything else that you've uncovered here, uh, where can people find your report that's uh, due out imminently? Um, I'll look forward it off Guardian. Patrick, I will send it to you. I'm hoping the global research will out of Canada will also pick it up. They can Look for it at Health Freedom Defense Foundation. Um, Planet Waves will likely carry it. And um, who knows who else? 
Okay, well, look, we really appreciate your work on this, and we will amplify that report at 21st Century Wire and also at TNT in previous or, sorry, subsequent segments coming up this week. But thank you very much, Michael Bryant, for your great work. Thanks, Patrick. There it goes, ladies and gentlemen. That's all we got time for this week. Top of the hour news headlines coming up, or today. We'll be back tomorrow, same place, same time, with uh, more action-packed news and analysis and much, much more. I'm Patrick Henningsen signing out. All the best.